Hello there. We're Vincent Elliott McNally. Yes, the great-great-grandsons of map-making mogul, Rand McNally. We've recently released our family's first almanac in over 50 years, and now we're setting out on a new journey. Using Rand's old travel journal as our guide, we're visiting his 20 all-time favorite towns. We'll be counting down the greats as given by our great-great-grandfather and want you, the listener, to come along for the ride. In a show we call These Parts, a podcast putting towns on the map. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of These Parts. I am one of your hosts. That makes me Vince McNally. And the other host would be, at least he usually is, my brother, co-host, and friend, Elliot McNally. Elliot, how you doing? I'm good. I am Elliot McNally this week as well, Vince, although I am channeling our great-great-grandfather, Rand McNally, heavily this week. You are channeling him. You're trying. You're adjusting the rabbit ears yeah. on the little RV we have. You're trying to channel him. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm a skeptic. I'm open to the ideas of the paranormal, of the occult. I've tried to talk to you into this before, Vince. I also have our Ouija board out. I don't know if we'll channel him as much as I'd like to, but I'm also referencing uh, his literary work in comparison to our own. As you listeners know, Vince and I are authors in our own right. We've co-authored a book together, Towns and Country, The McNally Brothers' Comprehensive Guide to Small Town America. I've gone a step further, published my own book, Chew on This, Elliot McNally's Food Guide to Small Town America. So You know, just to interject, I've also published something. Some would call it a radical grassroots pamphlet. It's called Spit It Out, Debunking the Myths of Chew on This. Very anti-veganism pamphlet you got there. It's anti-veganism, it's anti-narcissism, and it's strangely anti-federalism. It's very Franklinian. Yeah, on all our press tours for Chew on This, you were always picketing out front. I think it really uh, was detrimental to the sales, Vince. But what, I, what I'm getting at here is that we know how to write a book. And I think that's because of our great-great-grandfather. Wouldn't you agree? I would agree wholeheartedly, Elliot. Now, you might know our grandfather as um, a nonfiction writer. He's a man who seeks the facts and transcribes them for the rest of the world to see. Uh, but that's not all he wrote. You know, he was famous for being cartographical and biographical, but he was also a fiction writer. He also penned a few novels in his time. And that's really what brings us to this sleepy Wisconsin town. Similar to Hemingway's Parisian cityscape or Thoreau's glistening Walden Pond, the town we're in today was inspiration to Rand McNally as he hunkered down to write the great American novel, which he never finished. But today, this town serves as inspiration to authors and writers of all kinds. Vincent, it's a town I think we should put on the map. I think so, too. Listeners, we've arrived on a name. You'll be very excited. It's Jumroll, please. Okay, let me just take out our snare drum. You've already uncanned No, it. I meant it as the expression. Oh, okay. I'll put it away. Tab presents the map. Yeah, uh, thanks to at... Balls Guzzler uh, 69 that for that listener submission. We took a lot last week, and I still feel like this might be a prank, Vince, because that name is the least inspiring, but it was a name that we could agree on. It's also the name that gets us a shiny quarter whenever we mention it. So, listeners, take out tabs, the map, and uh, find your medallion and stick it in a town called Caner, Wisconsin. Now, I've already explained what Caner is that's the the key to being a good author to prefacing things. I don't know if you know that. Vince. Oh, yeah. Elliot, that's cool. You like slipped that lesson in, mm-hmm. and I didn't really even know I was learning. Yeah, I think that's that's the beauty of sort of my way of writing a book and approaching literary arts. But you know, I don't want to wax poetic too much. We have somebody to do that for us. We have a very famous author in his own right who lives right here in Caner, Wisconsin. Maybe he's working on something now. Would you care to introduce yourself? Yes. Hello, I'm. Darren Buttercuts, the Darren Buttercuts. You may have read one of my books on Amazon about the eroticism of the American prairie. I'm not sure that I have, Mr. Buttercuts. Um, Well, have you read... My most popular book is, of course, Gazing Out Across the Wheat. Have you read that one? That's a very, uh, very, very sexy title. Um, Have you also read... Uh, the corn and the sheath. Ooh, that's mm. giving me chills mm. just hearing about it. The, a, a lot of people have referred to you as the sexy Aldo Leopold of your generation. 
Oh, who's sexier than Aldo Leopold? Let's be honest. I, I know that whenever I read a Sand County Almanac, mm-hmm. uh, I just have a raging erection, and the same goes for, for reading. <laughs> Elliot, it. family show. Yeah. Use colorful illusion. No, 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 no. There's there's nothing sexier than a projected rainfall man, because you can just feel that mist and those drops beating up on your face jacking up the humidity to like 80 85 percent i mean we're talking heat index is in the 110s and that just gets my blood boiling um on that note why don't you go ahead and stick this crush tab can in the map we don't have enough time to explain it it's become quite convoluted but i would like to get back to exactly what it is you write because it's important i believe anyway Mr. Buttercut, Mm -hmm. for each author to have his, hers, or their defined voice. Don't you agree? I absolutely agree. And I think when you take the opportunity to blend the dry but informative facts that one can get in an almanac with the eroticism of a romance novel, I think that I mean that's a sweet spot right there, um, and that's where I've and that's where I found my niche. It's my typical audience, of course, is uh, women between Wyoming and roughly Indiana, uh, ages thirty to fifty, two to five in. kids. Uh, lots of gingham. The market research picked up on the gingham. Oh my god! Yeah. Like it's I didn't put gingham in my first three novels and then I just started everything sure. went gingham and it just it keeps hitting it keeps hitting I think it's like it's the sultriness of just the word itself oh my God, I think yeah, yeah. uh uh-huh. like gingham gingham it's got that it's got that silent h where mm-hmm. it looks like it should be gingham and, but it's gingham. And then, like, where did the H go? Yeah. And that's the mystery of gingham. And all your writing is just as moist as a Christmas ham. It's quite mm-hmm. a candy dropper, mm-hmm. I would say. Thank you. I am learning so much. I Can I... Do you mind? I don't. Mr. Mr. Buttercut, do you mind if I... I'm going to take this medallion back out of the map that you so artfully placed in, and I'm going to ask you to sign it, if you wouldn't mind. I've signed Stranger Things, let me tell you. Um, Mostly covered by gingham. See, you are a master of illusion. <laughs> I am not. I could learn a thing or two from you. Um, did you learn a thing or two or more from our great-great-grandfather? I mean, he, he is a person of inspiration within Caner, which is a place of inspiration. I can't even imagine what an, a fellow writer would take from him. I think, I mean, the first time I saw... His butter sculpture, because they sculpted him out of butter Mm. one summer. And just watching him melt in the heat, that just, it just, it struck me. Because it was the county fair. It was the agricultural peak of the year. And melting butter, just combining those two elements. I mean, it hit me like a... Like a slap across the face. A slap of sweet, sweet cream. So, Mr. Buttercut, we knew going in, Elliot and I, we like to do our research. I don't like to brag, but we're good at what we do. And we knew that you had a unique talent and um, a you had amassed a great following through your artful, some might say, I'm paraphrasing, maybe opining, a genius use of terms and motifs elliot if if you'll help indulge me we've prepared a little game it's called sexy or not and we are going to say a word from one of your novels nice and you will let us know if that word is a sexy word or if it's not a sexy word okay okay i like where this is headed vince do you want to kick things i would um i really would irrigation sexy Mm. Mm. that was an easy one folks we started him off with a softball elliot why don't you take it from here here's one that i'm not sure of because i know of the farming connotations plow surprisingly unsexy really especially well it depends on the time of year if it's if it's hard ground and you're out there 
working that soil and working that soil and tilling and gripping until the entirety of your Oshkosh Big Gosh overalls is sweaty and filled with that musk, and that's erotic. But if it's any other time... That's erotic. That's but, erotic. Okay. But, I mean, just, just the just idea of plowing. Like, maybe you'll be using an ox. I don't know what kind of farming no, you're, you're doing. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I see where you're coming from. Yeah. On its own, plow, it's it's not a sexy sound. No. no. Not like irrigation, which irrigation. is like, it sounds erotic to the ear. Well, you got gay right in there, right in the middle, mm-hmm. nestled up. Mm. Right. Now, I've got another one for you. Sure. Um, how about this one? Thresher. You're licking your lips. You're flaring your nostrils. Mm. You know, a thresher. I mean, if you're deep on the back 40 in your thresher and you're just watching all of the crops in front of you and you're just cutting and cutting and grinding and cutting and cutting and grinding, there's nothing more erotic than a good threshing. Ding, ding, ding. I think we can say that's sexy, Vince. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. All right, we've only got one more for yeah, you. Thanks sure. for indulging us. Of course. This one comes from your your breakout novel. Mm. Um, it's a historically fictional mm. uh, send-up of the Eli Whitney mm. biography. Uh, it's called Rapier's Wit. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the this one, it might cause a, a little bit of backlash, but... I still want to know if it's sexy or not. Sharecropper. <laughs> mm. Depends what they're sharing. Yeah. Because Eli Whitney, mm. was, he was big into interchangeable parts. So that's, mm. that's true. It's true. Mm. Uh-huh. Mm. Was he ever? He was. And when he... Oh, in Chapter 7, when Eli and this, the steward girl are interchanging fluids and interchanging parts, I mean, that's erotic but if you're talking simply about a cotton gin where you're taking the seeds out of cotton i mean that's i mean it's informative i mean it's good to have that if Mm -hmm. you're you know picking the cotton it's not quite interchangeable parts yes new york times said that rapier wit was the only book that could give your brain a hard on i have Mm. that one framed on my fridge another sexy word if i don't Mm -hmm. say so fridge thanks for indulging us that was a lot of fun and I, maybe selfishly, just want the good times to keep rolling, Elliot. I do too, Vince. Let's do that in a segment we call Local Legends. So listeners, many of the small towns that make America great and make America famous are built on the back of amazing individuals that stand out in the lore of that town's history. We investigate those important people. Maybe they're alive, maybe they're dead, or maybe they're a little bit mythological in our segment Local Legends. And this is a town that's not short on them at all. Yeah, usually, listeners, we're, we're talking about maybe real people of note. Our great-great-grandfather, Rand McNally, we've even investigated as its own local legend. But like, you know, Saul Paradise in On the Road or Luke Skywalker in Star Wars, the, the novelization of it, obviously, Kaner is home to literary protagonists that were dreamt up by its authors that have spent so many years crafting and creating these personas. We want to talk to Darren about maybe an influential literary character that he dreamt of. I'd have to go, and this is, I mean, it's my most popular character. I'd have to go with uh, Abner Wheatshaft, the rogue instructor from the Ag Extension School. This was a series of novels. This is a series. I mean, he was, it was five books in a trilogy. Like, I did the trilogy, and they kept asking, like, come on, give me more Abner. So I gave more Abner and more Abner. There was the prequel. There was the prequel, and then there was the 20 years later. And then I tried to branch it out. Yeah. Um, I took it in a sci fi uh series where he goes into space to teach the rest of the galaxies about the proper distance between plants that you have to have to appropriately uh till your sorghum but it wasn't as popular although uh it did can i just step in here and say something first of all thank you you're welcome thank you for being brave sir uh and second of all to all of you critics out there who are sitting in your 
Lazy Boy Recliners, aptly named, I might add. Uh, hello, you write him in, you say, mix it up, push boundaries. Mm-hmm. Then he puts Wheat Shaft in space, a contribution to the literary community that cannot be overstated, and you don't buy the book. Uh, explain. Do you care to explain America? I'm sorry, I get a little emotional about this sort of thing. You know, contrary to the zeitgeist, Vince and I do believe that Wheatshaft Dynasty in the 31st century was mm-hmm. probably the most innovative installment of the series. Mm, mm-hmm. Because I, I had, I actually had to do a lot of research there. I went down to, I went down to uh, Wisconsin uh, in Madison, and I uh, talked to a lot of the ag professors there about mm-hmm. tell me what farm implements are going to look like in the 31st century should we discover water on a different planet and that was um a lot of doors slammed in my face uh but that's uh, why you have kind of a crooked nose now yeah because of all the doors a lot of doors i mean yeah. my nose was broken 18 times which i mean a lot of that is on me for getting too close to the door a little presumptuous. Um, well, yeah. they, they have those little fish eyes that, that yeah. I think I must have looked enormous because I got right next to that little fish eye. And yeah. then they just, they opened it and slammed it in my face. I mean, uh. you'd think they would just say, hey, I, I don't want any. But they literally opened the door just a smidge and slammed it right back in my face. Agricultural yeah. professors, especially at mm. the University of Wisconsin-Madison, mm. are notoriously adversarial. So good on you for trying to glean that information. I think regardless of the ailments, it made for just a more compelling, visceral experience. Mm. Now, we all know Wheat Shaft to be your, your magnum opus, your mm. most beloved and most prolific main character. Mm-hmm. But I'd like to talk a little bit about another legend on the other side of the coin, if you don't mind, I, it's, it's an open secret. I know I'm not really spoiling anything for your fans. <laughs> no, no. But no. you have a pseudonym where you write erotic fiction for men. And it's under the pen name Tina Tin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And your most famous female protagonist is Sheila Sticky Britches, who is a lumber jill mm-hmm. and maple syrup would you call her a gatherer a sapper i don't know the the technical term uh she's she's into sugaring i think is what it's mm. called. yes she's a sugarer and she lends such a breath of fresh mm-hmm. air to the genre can i say that thank you i i get that i get that every now and again i've gotten a lot of pushback but um i think that's that's subsided as people are coming to the realization that men can write strong, erotic female characters who are in touch with the maple trees and in touch with sugaring. And that can be attractive for men. How much gingham does she wear? Does that play well in the male community? Uh, It's more flannel. Oh, uh, okay. I tr- wow. I tried Gingham in the first two novels and it just didn't didn't move the meter. But the third and the fourth, I switched to uh, more like a Lands End sort of red and black striped flannel. Sure, classic. The market data on these uh, it gets geared more towards um, New England, surprisingly, mm-hmm. uh, and some of the northern uh, Midwest, especially places where it's cold. In the winter where you might have ice ponds, where you might have women sugaring, just tapping into the zeitgeist of the fantasies of these these men who have always fantasized about the sugaring women and what they do, how they drill the trees and then ever so gently turn that nozzle so that the sweet, sweet sap comes out inside the bucket and i think that's a i mean that's a powerful erotic metaphor quick sexy or not word Mm. one word answer yeah flapjacks not sexy i always go with hot kicks obviously that is why you are the professional and i the amateur yeah yeah Uh, Yeah, you can say that again mm -hmm. wow (laughs) well i i have learned so much in this segment of local legends uh, I, I wish we could do this for all of your novels. How many of your novels have you written? 
with the most recent one, it's going to be 106. And that that is excluding Tina Tim. That's excluding Tina Tim. Okay. So that's an extra uh, 24. Okay. So. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, so listeners, if you haven't, you have some catching up mm-hmm. to do. Uh, but Vince, I think we have some reading of our own to do in our next segment. You're right about that. It's called Random Thoughts. Listeners, Random Thoughts is this season's iteration of Wouldn't You Like to Know? We're going to read from Rand's journal documenting his seventh favorite town, Kaner, Wisconsin. And then we're going to hear from one of you guys. So, Vince, let me take out the hermetically sealed travel journal, and you can get to reading all about Kaner. A little, a little sticky today. I think we've just... Mm, oh, that humidity. Yeah. It's the Midwestern humidity. It's um, moist. <laughs> st- still in great shape, though, yep. as we will carefully take the page-turning tweezers and go to number sub... Ah, here we are. Kaner, and now this shouldn't surprise you, folks. This is going to be the roughest of drafts of Rand's very own great American novel. Uh, never reached the prolific status of uh mr buttercut here but he did take a good old college try at it he forayed into the world of fiction and what we've got here is a rough outline elliot Mm. this is exciting it's very exciting you can tell it's rough uh it is scratched out there's other notes written it's it's even hard to decipher i'm looking forward to hearing what you're gonna read well let's start with a plot synopsis which is the first thing at the top of the page It shouldn't surprise us. Our great-great-grandfather dreamed big. If he was going to go for it, he was going to go all the way. And this is interesting. I'm reading, and it looks like this is a novel. It's a novel about a man who takes a stagecoach, and the stagecoach takes a wrong turn, and and it rides into the past. Wow. And it looks like there's a little illustration here. It seems like it is the very beginning prototypical stages of the Wells Fargo logo. Yep, I can't speak uh, to whether that has been plagiarized or not. Uh, I, w- I won't venture a guess. I don't know if maybe Tab Cola owns Wells Fargo or vice versa. But I will say that he sort of comes into this lost world type narrative. As I'm skimming, he is at one point he just comes from the town... He, he stopped over at the, you know, he's at the general store and then he kind of takes the path less travel. He's going to take the scenic route and he winds up in the Mesozoic era. So when you say Mesozoic in the Lost World, you literally meant the Lost World, Vince. There are dinosaurs in this novel as well. I do. There are dinosaurs. He's almost making it too scientific a word. Uh, there are all sorts of monsters. He says the big lizard ones. He says... Uh, the big woolly mammoth ones, he says, uh, even some crazy ones with like a lot of eyes and then some have boobs. Darren, sexy versus sexier mm. big lizard woolly mammoth. Big lizard will, I mean, I mean a, big, a big lizard, well, <laughs> it, it's harder than you'd think. Uh, a big lizard, uh, it's scaly and it's probably, it seems like a bad boy. It seems like someone who's just going to sit out there on a rock just daring you to move mm-hmm. and staring deep into your soul. But a woolly mammoth, that's someone who'll keep you warm at night mm. and someone mm. who will take you inside his giant muscular trunk and cuddle you inside his fur. So I think it's woolly mammoth by a nose. And you know what? You're inspiring me to ask you a follow-up. Vince, obviously you've laid out the outline that Rand has for us. I'm curious to know, given this skeleton work, Darren, where would you take this novel? Mm -hmm. you got a guy who rides into the past, into the Mesozoic era Mm -hmm. era on a Mm -hmm. stagecoach. What would you do? So the stagecoach is going along this... It's this river area that has just been uh, sculpted by these glaciers. And he comes across this young cave person. No, not a cave person. Oh, a woolly mammoth. Ah, And he comes across this sexy woolly mammoth. 
whose father is very angry at that she wants to run away with him, but she and the stagecoach person run away together, and their love sustains them through the rest of the Ice Age. But then the glaciers melt, and she gets cholera. And some other some disease, but I'm gonna wow. call it, I'm gonna call it Mesozoic cholera, and I like she the sound of it. I know she dies in his arms, crushing him in the process because of the weight disparity. He being a human is probably about one sixty one seventy. She being a woolly mammoth is at least a ton and a half. She crushes him so that his last gasp is underneath that giant woolly mammoth flesh and he dies suffocated in her fur as her father comes over the hill and sees the two of them and weeps for their love a round of applause oh bravissimo bravissimo uh, do you hear that penguin publishing mm-hmm. i think we've got a bestseller i mean using rand's inspiration and taking it i can see this book being the next generation's catcher in the rye. This is someone they're they're going to be reading this book in eighth grade, uh, and some people are going to be spark noting it because they didn't read it. Uh, and just talking about you know what what are all, all the symbolism. I, I I'm losing my mind here a little bit. So many motifs. Now I would love to, as I turn the page, see how that amazing immaculate description stacks up against Rand's own draft. We don't want to hurt your feelings. Yeah, I just want to preface this, Darren. I mean, Rand yeah. was a genius. So, Vince, what do we have? The guy rode. The guy's name was Rand. But sometimes they would say Captain Rand to call him instead. I'm trying to read. This is a sidebar. The mm-hmm. punctuation I would describe as erratic. So if it sounds like I'm speaking erratically, I'm trying to be faithful to mm-hmm. it. And so, Captain Rand, as he was called, he drives the stagecoach and doesn't take the normal way home from store, stores all caps. He drives it, it goes back in time. That's all caps. Then, whoa, there's a big monster, but the monster looks like a bullfrog with many teeth. Now, a lot of this is, keep in mind, Rand is writing this, what, in 1835, so the the Some of the technical terminology, it's not going to be there. Mm -hmm. Teeth's monster frog eats at him, but doesn't get him. Captain Rand is too dang fast. Way so fast, he's the winner. And then it looks like the last line is the end, question mark, which... It's a weird way to just just end chapter one of the book. I just want to critique that a little bit, but but I I do want to say that this bare bones skeleton, not to put Darren to shame or anything, mm-hmm. seems leaps and bounds better. Well, I, I think his use of metaphor, yeah, uh, the bullfrog. Um, if I mean, I'm just reading into this here, being yeah. a professional writer, exactly uh, appears to be a metaphor for the easy credit for the farmers and <laughs> yes. the teeth of the bullfrog is the interest that these farmers would have to pay so really it sounds like this entire uh, passage is about um silver coinage and a uh, support of silver coinage uh cheap money for the farmers it's um it's like wizard of oz but 60 years earlier basically wow you can you can almost mm-hmm. see now with that mm-hmm. description mm-hmm. that you've gleaned. It's become so obvious. Yeah, yeah. you can see yeah. Rand typing his typewriter and looking out at the bucolic Wisconsin landscape mm-hmm. and, and formulating this mm-hmm. into his story. This has been an amazing yeah. exercise, Vince. Beautiful, beautiful. I I'm at a loss for words, and thankfully, I can you know let a listener do my work for me because I'm I'm not going to be any use for the next five minutes, Elliot. And thankfully, we have a highly skilled writer with us and a reader. Uh, Darren, would you care to read one of these listeners' write-in questions? Uh, this is from uh, Mary Pumice Stone in Springfield, Illinois, lovely city. Great. What does uh, Mary have to say? Uh, she is asking about how the Wisconsin, the Wisconsin, um, oh, here it is, uh, how the Wisconsin evenings, 
how the sun sets over Lake Michigan, how would that have influenced Rand in his writings? Mm. It's a powerful uh, image. Yeah, you know, mm. you, you think of Rand uh, very Thoreau-esque mm. walking around uh, the shores of Lake Michigan, mm. taking in the scenery mm. and transcribing that, translating it even into story. Um, just speaking for myself, you know, being a descendant, when mm-hmm. I see the sunset, I see all different colors, mm-hmm. um, and I I see America, mm-hmm. and I think Rand traveling America, he's he's using that as a metaphor. Uh, the sunset is America. What would you say, Vince? Now, when I look at the sunset, I see like it's like when you have a soup and you're gonna like poach an egg in the soup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then the horizon, especially when the horizon's water, like mm-hmm. Lake Superior, that's like extra close to the soup metaphor, more so than usual. Mm-hmm. But you can do the soup metaphor without water. I think it's important to remember that. Anything can be soup. That's right. I think so. I think so. I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm an amateur again, um, but then the, the sun would be the egg. Mm-hmm. And then the next morning, it's when it's done, when it's totally poached. And that's, wow. I mean, that speaks to the importance of the water in poaching and how you can't you can't do it too quickly you have to give the egg its time to poach like yep. you don't want it to be too thick but you don't want it to be too thin either you want it to be just right yeah. so that when your spoon hits it it oozes out slowly over your ramen now you're, you're making this sexy mm. now too mm. and i think Rand would have appreciated that i think he would uh this has just been amazing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I wish we got questions like this one more often, Vince, mm-hmm. so we could use and kind of flex our literary muscles a little bit. Yeah, it's a really a shame that most of you who write in are what I would say barely literate mm-hmm. dullards yes. whose opinions are asinine at best. And asking about a movie that came out 40 years ago. You know, how many times can we discuss that? Mm-hmm. Uh, we want to sink our teeth into something that Rand would have appreciated, that Darren puts his livelihood towards it. He appreciates. Mm-hmm. I, I think this has been a visceral segment. I don't know about you. That's another erotic word, visceral. Yes, that's yeah. exactly why I yeah. use it. I just, I went out on a, on no, a no, limb no, there. No, 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 it's a sexy limb. I tried yeah. it out. Um, speaking of words, though, mm-hmm. Vince, I think we have a great segment to segue into. Oh, I, it couldn't be more perfect, Elliot. And that's what we call Say What. Say What is our investigation into the local lexicon of the towns that we visit. What sort of lingo do you need to know to fit in, to sound like a local? Now, this is a special town for that sort of thing because it's not just the spoken word that has its own sort of cadence. It's also the written word. Very true. Uh, A lot of writers are here. We can say that. Uh, Darren being one of them. There are certain phrases that is, are used to describe grammar and anything to have to do with books that publishers and editors will use, and they come from Caner. Um, we want to talk linguistically here about some phrases that you might not even know that originated in Caner, Wisconsin. Um, I'm just thinking off the top of my head here, a, a Rand stanza. That, that's mm. something where it, it, if you see an editor say, you know, this is kind of becoming a Rand stanza, you might want to look into that. That's where you start with a coherent thought and it just sort of trails off into ramblings and expletives until the page itself is torn. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that you might not know came from Kane or Wisconsin. Darren, do you have any of these other insights and tidbits? Yeah, I mean, I mean, <laughs> everyone has a Rand stanza from now to time, <laughs> yeah. uh, especially if... Uh, I mean, you're getting towards the end of daylight and you're just trying to finish up that last thought and it just becomes a series of exclamation points and ampersands and uh, number signs. Yeah, it's like it's like you're it's like you're cursing, but in the uh, comics. Yeah, Um, a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of a sexy word. Yes or no? Surprisingly, yeah. You got P uh, right there. P, it's got the P, and you can't, and the O is hidden. It's like gingham. It's like the H is hidden, the O is hidden, and onomatopoeia. So mm. it's just like it's a oh, it's a little surprise. As many O's are. As many O's mm. are. Wow, uh, Darren. Anything else? Any other grammatical, linguistic terms that you employ here? Oh well, there's um, my favorite. Uh, of course, is the uh, is called fleening. 
Mm. Uh, and it was named after the um, the author uh, uh, Aaron Fleen, who wrote around the uh, turn of the twentieth century, mm. and much of his much of his dialogues were actually just taken literally from the dialogue uh, of the town because mm. he was very small. Mm. I mean, small and thin, so he could hide in all sorts of places. Uh, and of course, this was prior to the easiness of a tape recorder or uh, your phone and recording. Like he could hide inside a woman's hoop skirt, and she wouldn't even know. So he could literally take all of the dialogue. Like maybe she's talking to her sister about, "Oh no, the milkman shorted me a quart," and that would literally go into his next book. So when you're literally transcribing reality and just shoving it inside somebody else's mouth, that's called fleeing around here. University of Berkeley of California described uh, Aaron Fleen as the concordance of journalism, fiction, mm-hmm. and sexual assault. <laughs> he was everything the time didn't need, mm-hmm. but also that the time didn't want. Faulkner was a huge advocate of this methodology in mm-hmm. his books. All through them, they're all kind of an interconnected universe. Um, critiques of Aaron Fleen, though, I will say, um, people say that his books are just random dialogue, mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. uh, non-sequiturally placed. And it's entirely long sections of dialogue that's literally just about, hey, do you have this new tomato seed in well i'm gonna have to wait for it for next week oh by the way how's your son oh he's fine he's recovering from his cold how's your boy oh he's died i mean it's just it's but it's very matter of fact like he he didn't write with a lot of passion it was it was reportage but it was i mean it's it was experimental Man, frankly, he should have gone to prison a lot of times. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of times. But on the other hand, he had become, over time, the world's foremost authority on writing about the interior of hoop skirts. Mm-hmm. So It's it, true. I mean, the measurements and the geometry that he brought to his, to his work. I mean, you could see the skirt. You could see yourself inside that fabric. And what's inside it, if you know what I mean. Elliot, I'm not sure that I do. Again. More fabric <laughs> is what he means. Layers upon layers. Layers upon linens layers and silks. of linens. Yeah. Silks and structures. I heard a term in my travelings, and I would like to, because I never tracked down what exactly it meant. So I would love for you to enlighten me, if mm-hmm. you would. Of course. So we've all heard of a page turner. This one was called a page folder. Mm. I heard a new novel be sort of like milk toastedly described as a page folder. Well, that goes back to the days when a lot of people couldn't afford books. So if a book was really good, you would want to uh, finish the entire story and pass it to the next person. But if a book was just kind of so-so, you'd read about 15 pages in and then fold that page and then pass it to somebody else who would begin at the fold and go forward. And once you have about 19 or 20 people who have just a section of the book, you'd get together and then describe the entire story. And usually it would be over uh, pie, uh, coffee. Sometimes there'd be some sort of uh, cheesy baked dish. Uh, often with various meats, uh, occasionally a potato or two. But that's, I mean, that was also, that's how a, the term folding bee came a about. Fo- oh, a folding? A folding bee. Oh, like a spelling bee? Or a like quilting a... bee. Or... Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Sure. Okay. You know, I think one of Aaron Fleen's most visceral novels mm-hmm. was The Storyteller's Remorse. Ooh. And that came out about, what, like 1870-ish? 1874. Five, yes. yes. So that was him hiding underneath, like kind of in, in between the glass and metal part of a coffee table, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. documenting all the dialogue of people talking about a book that they were discussing. So mm-hmm. it was like Inception before Inception. It was, it was very meta before meta was a thing. Yeah. And I mean, it was difficult because he didn't have a typewriter. He tried to write all of these things with a pencil uh, when he was wedged in there. 
and I believe the actual um, space was roughly six and a half inches. Mm -hmm. So um, it was very difficult for him to actually move the pencil. So much, I mean, much of it was smudged. If you ever, if you go to the uh, Caner City Hall, you can actually see uh, parts of the first draft of that novel. They have it on display there, and it's, I mean, in, it's mostly smudges, an occasional tear, just just slashes. Uh, a bunch it of looks, notes from his publisher saying, "What is his this? I, don't saying, I can't read this." Yeah, <laughs> saying, "What do you expect me to do with this?" Which he in turn incorporated into the next draft of mm-hmm, the novel. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's I mean that's why uh, if you go to like, like the middle of that book, it just descends into a long discussion about uh, like how are these paragraphs? Do you have any sort of punctuation? What is the point of this? And that's why what is the point of this on page ninety eight in the uh, second edition? It just says what is the point of this over and over and over and over because that was the note he kept getting from the publisher. But it's powerful stuff. I, this whole Again, I feel like I'm gushing. Gushing, is that a sexy word? Always. You, th- too easy. I mm-hmm. should have known. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. I'm not thinking straight because mm-hmm. I've just been so pleased at our time here together. It's been, to say informative does not do it justice, mm-hmm. to say enlightening doesn't do it justice, to say palpitation causing. Now we're getting closer. Mm-hmm. So thanks. Vince, I feel like you're dancing around a, a metaphor to lead us into this uh, into the next segment. Uh, am I accurate in that? Uh, you know me too well. Well, I say in the spirit of being direct and forward, as Darren or any author would want us to be, let's just jump right into it. Let's go to our next segment, Did You Know? So listeners, Did You Know is our rapid-fire trivia segment where we fire five fast facts back and forth because we know you don't always have time for 10 fast facts, let alone 12 fast facts. So here we are with five. One time we did a show that was all fast facts and people were nauseated by it, so we had to to peel it back. People said they heard buzzing, the buzzing of many insects in their minds. It's like an Aaron Flynn novel. Yeah. We also recorded it at a beach sanctuary, mm. so it didn't, didn't really work out that well. But that's neither here nor there at the beach sanctuary of New England. It is actually here, though. I was mistaken. It is here in Caner. Uh, and Elliot, I believe you have the first Did You Know fact for us. I do, guys. Did you know that although Rand didn't publish the great American novel as he'd hoped, he did, in our family, actually, published a posthumous novel all about... A very interesting topic. Tell me more. Well, guys, our our family published a book that was all, and, and actually it was inspired by Aaron Fleen, all letters between Rand and his publisher. A lot of people mistakenly liken their relationship to sort of an Adams-Jefferson thing, where they were adversaries, but also friends until late in life. Jefferson and Adams famously died on the same day. Contrary, Rand, many of his letters were wishing death upon his mm-hmm. publisher. And he actually literally danced on his grave when he did die. Uh, Darren, have you read this book? I have. And it's, um, it's, it's really a tremendous insight into the writer's process. Because you start with the first draft, and then you get the notes from the first draft. And then, uh, more often than not, you have this series of escalating threats that you write to your editor. Like, uh, I'm going to... Uh, like it starts with I'm gonna ring your doorbell and leave dog poop, and then it just pretty uh, escalates. It's pretty, pretty juvenile. It's pretty innocent, and then it escalates to uh, I'm going to put sugar in your gas tank. I'm going the worst kind of sugar. The worst kind of sugar, and then I mean, eventually it gets to I'm going to kidnap your child and hold him for ransom, and then beyond that, it's like I will bury your family inside fire. <laughs> And usually by that point, um, the edits from each step of that process have made the book a stronger, a stronger piece of material. I mean, I, I mean, I've worked with several dozen editors in my time, and I, I've learned something from each of them. Uh, namely, some of them love their families more than others. So I think it's gauging what threats work. Yeah. For each different editor, and, and that, incorporating that into the style. 
it's it's often imposed on a writer. You know, mm. who is your audience? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what are you writing mm-hmm. this for? And I think that's all part of the process. Who is this audience that your threats are directed toward? I mean, and for for most of my works, it's women ages thirty to fifty <laughs> who live between Wyoming and Indiana and mm. have between two and five children and enjoy being up. With that, Darren, do you have an next did you know fact for us? I do. As a matter of fact, did you know Caner, Wisconsin was named after Philip Caner, who was a trapper during the 18th century, but he didn't trap fur. No, he trapped people. He trapped people inside his arms because he was a hugger. Oh, I thought it was going to go like a most dangerous game type of vibe. No, <laughs> not not at first. <laughs> not at first. Um, but then the the hugging became uh, not satisfactory enough, and then uh, then he started paying uh, young Canadian orphans to come across the border, whom he would hunt for sport. Vince, but, um, why didn't we research this? How did this uh, fall through our fingers? I mean, you you should have known from the statue of him in the center of town. Um, with a young orphan in his grasp in one hand and a bear trap in the other. You know what? I think that's because that's made of butter, too, and it's oh, pretty hot yeah, today, yeah, so it was, it was melting. melting yeah. <laughs> but, Vince, I mean, did you know this? No. I had no idea. I think, honestly, the tradition here locally of immortalizing things in an easily melted, fatty mm-hmm. animal product, it isn't... A very effective archival method. But it's delicious. Help me get up to speed, Mm -hmm. because you don't get to eat the sculpture. It melts into the ground. It's true. But what you can do the next morning is when the butter seeps from the earth again, and you get this wonderful butter dew that Mm -hmm. if uh, if you heat a muffin and you... and you take it out to that butter dew, and you just kind of... Just gently let it sit inside that pooling butter. It, I mean, it's it's delicious and it's healthy for you because you get a lot of minerals from the earth, uh, mostly mm-hmm. iron and uh, some sodium, a little bit of uh, potassium too. So I'm gonna have to stop you right there. Mm-hmm. We've got mm-hmm. butter, we've got dew, mm-hmm. muffin, sodium, mm-hmm. iron, all in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. I mean, this, this seems like the sexiest sentence ever constructed. To me. Oh, it is, especially <laughs> if you're wearing your gingham. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, with that, Vince, I think you should move on to our next did you know fact. So, folks, did you know that uh, much like New England has Stephen King, and then the knockoff Stephen King, generally considered sort of a buffoonish character dean koontz so too haveth caner a knockoff version of the immaculate buttercut marshall marshall etheridge marshall 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 etheridge no it's just uh uh, god um see where i have pioneered uh the melding of an almanac of facts with Highbrow erotica, what he has decided to do is take a, um, a yearbook, like a, a city's yearbook, and combine that with sort of, um, I wouldn't say erotica, I'd say smut. It's smut. I have a title here. Mm-hmm. I have a title here. Cornfuckers by Marshall Etheridge. Mm. Not to be confused with his follow-up, right after your... Vision of the future cornfuckers in the in the forty first century. Forty first. Yeah, what is that? Forty first. That's the most vulgar thing about the whole ordeal. No one knows what life is going to be like two thousand years from now. <laughs> he didn't even do the research. I know. He just he he looked he looked inside my message boards and cribbed a bunch of ideas mm-hmm. from my fans and. He decided, I'm going to take these. And it's... Speak about his most latest work, if you would. I, I realize you're already enduring a lot here. Mm-hmm. It's called mm-hmm. Hayseed on the Butt Cheeks. <laughs> and it features a pair of butt cheeks with what looks like a very mild hay rash on the cover. The main character is just a pair of butt cheeks. Completely separated from a human body. It's just... 
A hayseed on butt cheeks. It's not even a metaphor. It's literally butt cheeks. I'm not even. I'm not sure how that is even happens. How is that sustained? How can two butt cheeks go around and have adventures? How do they breathe? There's no way for butt cheeks to breathe. I'm actually very surprised to hear that. That I was not anticipating that it was sentient butt cheeks. Sentient butt cheeks. Huh. Mm-hmm. Well. Now that you put it that way. Hey, Vince, well, let's not get Darren worked up. He is our mm. guest. I, I do want to say, Darren, that you got him back. Sort of like how the author of Don Quixote, in uh, his name escapes me, in the sequel, he actually confronts the guy who did a knockoff Don mm-hmm. Quixote. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Abner Wheatstock's main adversary throughout the season based on Marshall, Marshall Etheridge. Mm-hmm. His name is Lucifer Barley. Can you talk about that? <laughs> Ah, yeah, Lucifer Barley. That was... Uh, it. It's the entire arc of that character is he's jealous of Abner, and he's not the um, rogue professor at an ag extension school. He's a mild-mannered assistant teacher mm-hmm. at a local ag-based high school. So it's just, you know, a step <laughs> down there. Um, yeah. And he's always, he's plotting. He's plotting to take down Abner with um, various grain and vegetables sort of um, mayhem. Whether it's Grain bugs, and vegetable mayhem. Grain and vegetable mayhem. I mean, that's... Elaborate. Please, well... If you don't mind. Of, of course. Um, and it typically involves some sort of insect. Or mm. maybe he go... Well, uh, in my... Uh, in my... 58th book, All Across the Prairie, uh, he took slats from the barn roof and put them on his feet and walked around inside the wheat field and created these giant um, circles, uh, not knowing that Abner had uh, a secret camera set up inside the scarecrow. So things like that, or... um, he would create this um, super bug. This was this was the one that I did in the 31st century where he created this super giant bug that would eat all of the crops on the planet Lepton. So it was, I think when, when I, I, I think what upset him most was uh, when I literally introduced the character, because this slipped by the editor as uh, also known as Marshall Marshall, etc. <laughs> wow. Also known as Marshall Marshall, etc. You couldn't go all the way <laughs> couldn't, to didn't doing to. his full name. Well, if you use yeah. the full name, you're you're technically on the hook for a libel. It oh, goes beyond okay. parody at that point. It's a real gray area. Huh. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, wow. I mean, that wasn't a gray area to me. Mm-hmm. That was... Full black and white. Full black you and white. are superior to Marshall. Marshall Etheridge. You mm-hmm. won mm-hmm. that bout. I, did. uh, I didn't know that. But guys, did you know that because of so many authors and famous books around here, Hollywood is always lurking around Kane or Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Lurking, lurking is a good term. I think. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we saw Brendan Fraser sort of hiding behind a silo. Yeah, mm-hmm. he's always mm-hmm. trying to like dip his toes into the producing and directing game around here mm-hmm. and it's always the fat cats and how Vince are the fat cats in in Washington or Hollywood no yeah it's fat cats they're both they both have fat cats okay I just want to confirm right. okay so the, the Hollywood fat these cats, ones are from Hollywood yeah for sure. they're they're always uh, scuttling their claws around caner and what happens especially <laughs> with fledgling authors maybe people who aren't as experienced as yourself Darren is they will sell the rights to a book, and then it will go haywire, and mm-hmm. all of their creative ownership is gone. Darren, I wanted to know if there's a book that maybe you got a little too excited about earlier in your career, sold the rights, later on you go to the theater, and you say, hey, this isn't my book at all. Mm-hmm. I had a book about... It was actually it was more of a, it was more of a personal story oh, about, no. a, about a young author um and his daughter and their their farm was struggling uh due to a recent locust outbreak like it happens um and how 
this farmer uh, went to another town to try and get some locust-free summer wheat. Um, and uh, his uh, heartache and uh, trouble uh, getting there and how he falls into a well. Uh, it was a dry well that he, mm-hmm. he falls into and he's trapped down there for 14 days, but her love uh, pulls him out. And that became uh, the Matthew McConaughey movie Interstellar. <laughs> a lot of creative decisions. Mm-hmm. Let me just mm-hmm. put listeners in the mindset yeah. of Darren Buttercut here. Mm-hmm. Sitting down in the theater, you're all ready to see how did they uh, direct the scene yeah. of him getting pulled out by the love? Mm-hmm. And then you see Matthew McConaughey doing whatever the fuck he does mm-hmm. on screen. Mm-hmm. Most, mostly just walking around without his shirt. And notoriously, in this novel, everyone wore shirts. Everyone wore shirts. Yeah. Everyone he wore shirts. Left that to the imagination. I mean, you mm-hmm. can't have bare-chested gingham. No. Yep. No. Gingham, re- gingham, gingham hides, yet it reveals, uh, is what uh, I'll say. Yeah. The dark squares mm. and the light squares. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a classic, it's a classic. Sim- symbology there. Wow. Uh, Darren, with that, uh, could you carry us into our final Did You Know fact of the segment? Well, did you know, uh, Kaner was chosen for the 1976 World's Fair. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, they ended up having to decline it. Um, well, see, see what happened was they... Um, it was 1970, and uh, the, the mayor at the time um, decided he wanted to have a giant uh, music and arts festival because apparently he had just seen the documentary of Woodstock and said, well, we have a lot of fields, we have a lot of space, and let's do the same thing, but not with music, maybe with books. So... Uh, hmm. it, 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 so he it, he talked to the World's Fair people and had them uh, come around. And the the plans, if you've ever uh, seen these, are, are are shocking and amazing. Like for one, there was this giant uh, metal book that was going to be in the center of the World's Fair exhibit, which is open to uh, the page like four hundred, and then you could crawl up inside that book. And uh, people dressed as words would uh, reach out and attack you. Um, it was it was really more it was more of like books as a haunted house metaphor. Sure. Um, and then of course there were books from around the world where people from different parts of the world would throw books at you, but it being in their own native language. So you would have the Swedish exhibit, and they would throw uh, Swedish books at you, and then you'd have the uh, Indonesian exhibit, and they would throw Indonesian books at you. Um, they had deep fried books. Uh, was was planned. Um, I mean, they weren't. They weren't. I mean, some of them were real books, but some of them were mostly uh, like that wax paper you get on certain candies. It was mm-hmm. that. Um, there was and, one um, a, a little bit of controversy. Mm-hmm, I remember mm-hmm. now, and looking at these plans confirms it. Uh, your father, Jeffrey mm-hmm. Buttercut's. He, he was going to write the national anthem behind his back mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. on a typewriter on a and typewriter. then set the typewriter on fire. I mean, what happened there? That's that's why the uh, why the World Fair got got canceled. Um, <laughs> they didn't even have it that year. It, no, they no, were supposed they, to have it in Paris, um, I think, and they just uh, said, no, yeah, we're not um, do it. yeah, we're not com- coming coming to Canada because of, um, it was he was meeting with investors. I mean, Investors wanted to know, uh, like, how, how is this going to happen? How can you do that? So um, he did the trick, and he done the trick hundreds of times. Um, so he got his old uh, Smith Corona and boiled it up like, like he always did. But, I mean, the contract that you have to go through to book him, like, it's pages and pages of uh, pyrotechnics mm. and things like that, and he, um, what when he was typing, one of the explosive pots just it caught his shirt on fire. But he kept going. He kept typing the national <laughs> anthem, and his shirt uh, burned off. He was fine. Mm. It was just the shirt that was never the same. And unfortunately, the shirt 
uh, what looked like the American flag, and he just couldn't find another shirt that looked exactly like that. So uh-huh. he just um, he just gave up. Yeah. Well, and when people see the American flag mm-hmm. burning, whether yeah. it be a shirt or a different article of clothing, yeah. or just the flag, or just the flag, uh, people get a little upset about that. Yeah, the American Legion beat the shit out of him. <laughs> and then on a note like that, can I ask mm-hmm. American Legion? Sexy or not sexy? Fifty-fifty. Mm. One word sexier mm. than the other. Listeners, you are going to have to figure that one out mm. for yourself. You know what? We can't give you all the secrets, and by we, I certainly mean Mr. Buttercut. It has been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, and you've been every bit as captivating and riling and... Mm, I can't think of the word, Elliot. Help me out. I'm gonna go back to my my old <laughs> coffer of words. I'm gonna say visceral again mm. I know, mm. because I know that one is sexy. Uh, now he that's knows that's a sexy again. word. Safe but sexy, Elliot. Safe but sexy. Uh, so safe. thanks for joining us. We hope you'll join us for our final segment. Wish you were here. So, listeners, wish you were here is our audio postcard from us to our great great grandfather Rand. Telling him that, hey, if you're up there listening in Ouija heaven, we're taking your footsteps under advisement and following them town by town. Vince, the, the little uh, Ouija board disc moved a little bit. Actually, I, I may have hit it, actually. No, I, yeah, for sure. I saw you kick at it. Yeah, sir, my feet are up on the table right now kicking at it. Anyway, listeners, uh, and Rand uh, and Darren, hopefully you'll join us in this letter. It goes something like this. Dear Rand, wish you were here in Caner, Wisconsin. A town home to many prodigious, prophetic, and prolific authors. Where the rainfall is recorded accurately and the gingham is worn seductively. A town that serves as the inspiration for writers of all kinds, but most famously yourself and Darren Buttercup. A town where an aspiring author might be inspired by the turgid wheat stalks or the crowning ears of corn. And a town where I shall bury my enemy, Marsha Marsha Etheridge, inside a tomb of nothing but cobs. So we'll bookmark that for a later time. Farewell from these parts to yours. (laughs) 